I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to my podcast, Second Chance. From Australia's most wanted man to a critically acclaimed author, Greg Roberts has truly turned his life around. He escaped from an Australian prison, fled to India, was recruited by the Indian Mafia until his eventual capture and imprisonment in Germany during a smuggling operation. Now a free man, we talked from opposite ends of the globe. So I apologise in advance for the tropical background noise from Jamaica, where Greg now resides. Greg, it's it's brilliant to have you on the show today. Thanks, thanks for coming and joining my podcast, Second Chance. Now, there are lots of things I'd like to ask you. You've led a, an extraordinary life. I, I'd like to begin, and I'm sure my audience would like me to begin by asking you about why you became Australia's most wanted fugitive. But let's not start there, because... I'm really interested in your perspective on lockdown versus prison, because a lot of people liken lockdown to prison. You've been in prison. I've been in prison. Um, so let's start there. What, what's your view? Share your opinion about what you think the differences are, if there are any differences. Sure. I think there's a general point that, um, that you know, non-imprisoned populations allowing themselves to become more and more like prisoners. They're strip searched at airports, they're patted down frequently, they have to have permission even to leave their own country um, in certain circumstances with regard to COVID in the response to COVID-19. Uh, that's something I think people should be aware of, the slow creep that, that everyone in the world is going to become a prisoner in a sense. Um, that, that's, and, and if that is the case, then what does it mean? What does imprisonment itself mean? But going to the point of dealing with anxiety and dealing with stresses in this in this life, I have seen a number of men over the years deal with prison very well, very positive, remain positive people, keep their their sense of their humanity intact, their empathy for others. And that some of them were prison officers, some of them were prisoners. And in the case of the prisoners, quite often it was it was a number of things. One was art, the prisoners who had earned the right to have a guitar or to have a an easel and, and some paints were quite often the calmest and the most, if you like, creative and positive prisoners in there in, with that experience. They were making, they were giving out the, the right kind of energy for everyone else. And every unit should have a few artists in it to just even things out and give you the right vibe. Another thing is bonding. Uh, when people had strong bonds in the prison with other other men, I was in a men's prison. The men, I noticed that those men had, that they survived many, many things, but the isolated men didn't. As you know, suicide, self-harm and self-mutilation are epidemic in prison. And um, there's a constant, you know, understanding that the door, when it, can, when it is opened, could find a dead person in there who was committed, who was taking their own life at night. This happens a lot and you deal with this. 
I've seen that the men who were completely isolated were those who, who were in that situation. It was never someone who had a strong bonded connection with other men that they had faith in and trusted. Thirdly, there's family, of course. Um, those who had even, we may think that these connections are tenuous, but when you're in prison, a letter from someone, it can give you all the guts you need to go on for another month. That one positive letter that you got from somebody, those connections with the family and with people outside are critically important. Even So even when we're in isolation, in lockdown, I know I agree with you, there are very few true parallels between a lockdown where you can eat what you like and pretty much open the door and do what you like and watch telly and do all sorts of other things, you know, check out Netflix and stuff. There, there are not really that many parallels with, with the rigidity of prison. And the, and the absolute era- erasure of your will and your, that's what they try to do, your personality and who you actually are as a person. But there are a certain number of little parallels. And I think um, one of them, if you're in isolation, maintain your contact with others by phone, by Zoom, by everything else. It's critically important. It's so important for us. And we're doing years of this, not, you know, a few months here and there, but literally decades of our lives that are taken up with this, and this is what sustains us. It's those links to, to other people and maintaining them. And if you let that lapse yourself, you're gonna, you can slide and you can be in difficulty. So I found that in that experience that those men who, who can get deep into a sense of purpose, what Viktor Frankl said at the end of it was that the, men, the people, the men and women who survived with the, the, the strongest, through the Holocaust experience, were the people who had a powerful sense of purpose, a powerful sense. It may be I'm going to survive this and get back to my wife. I'm no matter what happens, I'm going to get back to my wife. This is going to happen, or I'm going to get out of here and get to my kids, or whatever it is. But it may be simply a, a sense of you know spiritual purpose. But a sense of purpose is critical. And a lot of the experience that we're going through at the moment has taken away our sense of purpose in life. It may be the job that we had and the career that we were following or simply the interactions that we have with, like my mom, who was a retired person but had vivid interactions with all of her friends. My mom's passed away, but I know that if she were going through that sort of lockdown, it would be tremendously painful for her because her identity was was formed around this, around her interactions with others. So finding that sense of purpose, if it has been taken away, giving yourself a new sense of purpose, locking in a sense of purpose about what you're doing can be really helpful. In short, before I had a sense of purpose in prison, I struggled very, very, very much headbutting the system. Once I was went through solid, was rearrested, recaptured, put into solitary, I, I found a sense of purpose, which was teaching men who couldn't read and write and who were doing life sentences how to read. As soon as I found that sense of purpose, everything changed in the prison. And literally toward the end of it, when I was three months from my parole hearing, I, I was writing to my family saying, if I don't get this parole this time, it won't matter because the work I'm doing is so important and I, there's not enough time to do what I want to do. So instead of scratching off every day or every whatever, I was literally looking at the calendar going, oh my God, I'm going to get out of here soon and I haven't finished what I'm doing. So that sense of purpose changes everything in your perspective. And I just throw that in as a sort of little basket of things that may be useful to people going through these experiences right now. <laughs> and I'm sure they will find that very, very useful. And I, and I hear you and I can identify, especially with your your mantra about a sense of purpose, because it was, you know, as an innocent man in prison, it was what drove me, whereas lots of guilty people kind of conformed and and, and almost relaxed to the regime and, and sort of accepted their fate, if you like, and, and, and almost gave up on themselves uh, and just went through the regime. We're, we're talking about the comparisons between lockdown and prison, and you've shared with me a little bit about uh, your purpose in prison. Let me take you back to why you was in prison I've read that you were a bank robber and that you were sentenced to 19 years in prison in Australia for, for the crimes that you committed. They, I read something that described you as a gentleman bank robber because you said please and thank you. But um, it was whilst you was in prison, you escaped, you know, no mean feat in any prison, but you were brave enough. And I know lots of prisoners who have talked about escaping, even attempted to escape and, and have failed. So it, it, it's quite an achievement, um, good or bad, 
to escape from prison. But let's go back to, to, to the beginning, because I read that you were addicted to drugs, heroin in particular, and that you were a bank robber. And that's why you was in prison. Just talk me through a little bit about that time, why you were sent to prison, how long you were sentenced for, and most importantly, why you decided that prison wasn't for you and you were going to find a way out and how you found that way out. I'm so keen to find out how you escaped from prison, as I'm sure my listeners are as well, although we wouldn't advocate it to any other prisoner, of course. <laughs> no, not indeed. Um, and of course, it, it, it's a double-edged sword. You, you gain your freedom, but every, from that moment on, you live in fear um, every single second of your life until you're recaptured and as opposed actually being captured and locked up is, is, is the, is funny enough. It's a weird constellation because suddenly that fear is just gone. Okay. Let's go back. I discovered when I went into prison, of course, that I'd never been there and no one in my family had ever committed a crime. I'm the first person in six generations to commit a crime in my family. So of course, um, it was a, a completely unknown experience to me. I had every advantage. I was at university. I was an honest student. I was on my way to becoming a, um, they were people used to say the youngest tenured professor of philosophy in the country. I was, um, you know, literally an A grade student. Uh, I had every opportunity and I, I had lots of friends, a huge social community. My marriage broke up and I lost custody of my daughter over the space of two and a half years of battling and struggling. I didn't have the character to deal with it. I know now what a man should do if, or a woman if they lose their child in a custody case. I didn't have the, the character, the strength of character to deal with it properly. I crashed. I took heroin. A friend came and gave me heroin the first, that night. He said, I, I heard you lost the custody case today. This is going to help you. And I rolled up my sleeve and had my first shot of heroin. The next day I knocked on the door and said, give me another one. The oblivion of heroin was um, easier than dealing with the difficulties of having to sum up you know, summon up the character to work hard and deal with this and, do, and, and react properly. So I didn't within a very short time. I mean, I met people who were junkies for years. Within months, I was such a hardcore junkie that I'd sold everything, got rid of everything I had. And you will know having met um, addicts in your life, there's a, there's a, you bottom out. There's literally nothing left that you can sell. Even your clothing, if you would, you would if you, you have nothing. And uh, within a relatively short time, I was in, a, in the position of doing, once again, failure of character. Um, I was with someone. I didn't want to see that person cold turkeying. I'd cold turkeyed myself many times and been through it. But I was with someone. I didn't want to see her cold turkey. She was going through agony. I took a toy pistol that was in the house, and I went to a cinema and sold months the first night. I committed these robberies over and over every single time expecting to be killed. I always expected to be shot dead by the police. I always thought I had a toy gun and I knew they didn't know it. And I knew that if I pointed the toy gun at them, they would think it was real and they would shoot me. I did these robberies apologizing, saying, I'm so sorry to do this. I'm a heroin addict. I was arguably the worst criminal in the history of crime. So I was terrible at it. I, I felt bad about it from the beginning to the end. And when I was captured, I had a terrific legal team. I, I had a great family and they supported me and they put together a terrific legal team. My lawyer at the time ended up becoming chairman of the parole board in Australia. So I had a fantastic lawyer. And they all said, you have to plead not guilty. You will only be convicted of a five or six of these and you'll get a five to seven year sentence. If you plead guilty, you'll get a minimum of 10 years. But how could I go into the court and say to people that I had robbed, no, I didn't rob you when I did? How could I make them say he's the man and me say, no, nah, I didn't do it? How could it? It's like robbing them twice. And the first time I was a heroin addict, I had some kind of horrible excuse. Now I'm sitting in the court stone cold sober nine months after the event and completely wide awake and completely accepting responsibility. So I pleaded guilty. No witnesses had to come forward. No one had to go through the trauma again of coming to the case because I was guilty. And I accepted it and, and the sentence was there. I do think the sentence of 23 years, which I received in the, in the, in the first instance before appeal, was excessive. So did the appeals court. We appealed on the ground. If you plead guilty, you can't appeal other than on the ground that the sentence you received is cruel and inhumane. The um, appeals court agreed and reduced it to 19 years with a 14-year minimum, which gave me a straight 10 if I was of good behaviour. 
So I settled into it. I think going back, looking back, I had become, I I'd integrated myself into the system. I thought I've got to do this. I stayed in touch with my family. I had earned my regular visits. I got involved with the drama group. Um, there's a lot of other things that happened at the time that I could talk about, but I actually got involved. And, but I was very cheeky. And I ended up in the punishment unit several times. And that's all once again ego. But I ended uh, how up. How old was you? How old was you at the time when you were committing these robberies? Just, just a couple of questions out of what you've just said. Sorry to interrupt. One is when you talk about pointing that gun and expecting to be shot as a heroin addict, it makes me wonder whether you was hoping that there was another way out of your predicament that by using this toy gun, going on these robberies, wondering if you was going to get shot at any of these robberies, whether you were looking for that. I know that sounds a bit strange, but, you know, people do things, strange things when they're they're addicted to drugs or they're looking for another way out. And like you said, you didn't have the strength of character, so maybe that was something you was in search of. How many robberies in total had you committed to to warrant such a lengthy sentence? And how old was you at the time when you were committing these robberies and sentenced to 23 years, reduced to 19 years? I was 24 years old, and I had done 23 robberies for a total of $30,000. In the end, do I think that the 10 years I did um, was excessive for me? No, I don't think so. I do think that the sentence is counterproductive. Um, it, uh, in that case, it's a clean record. No, one's, no, no criminal conviction of any kind, no interaction with the police before, and nothing known about you, and you're a political leader of the city. You're on the front page of the newspaper every other day and um, doing interviews and so on as a, as a well-known leader in the left, you, this sentence, a five-year sentence would have, with, uh, say, a, a seven-year parole period would have been, I think, adequate and would have been correct. However, and I would have done the five, no matter what happened. As it turns out, I went down to the punishment unit several times. And the last time I went there, um, which was about six months before I escaped, I was in hospital, um, had a had broken rib, I had um, teeth knocked out um, in the punishment unit. I was in a bad state. My face was smashed up, my nose was flattened, and so I had to have operations to be rebuilt. So while I was in hospital recovering, chained to the bed, I decided that's not going to happen again. And until that happened, I had never thought to escape. I thought, I've got to do this for my family. I have to get through this. I've got to finish it. I've got to get out as fast as I can and get back to my family because I let everybody down. And when this happened, I lay in the hospital bed, chained to that bed, and uh, planned my escape. And it was very detailed, and I knew exactly how to do it um, once I figured it out. And we did. And I knew that the one place that they never looked at was the front gate of the prison, the front wall at the front gate. And I knew that if I could get there and get over it, I had a good chance of getting away before they even saw me because no one looked at that area. No one would be mad enough to try to escape over the front wall at the front gate. So that's the one place they didn't look. And I knew that I organized to get myself a job that I could roam around the prison. That was manipulation. I manipulated it. You know how you can manipulate the system if you want to. You want the job that you, you tell them you want a job that you don't want. And then they will not give you that job because it's the job you asked for. And then they're definitely going to give you the job that you actually wanted because they'll never give you the job that you asked for, no matter how compelling the case that you put and so on. So I got the job that I wanted. I got access to the front wall and um, we got in. There were some repairs going on at the front gate. So we got in and the two of us and cut our way out of the prison through the route, standing on the governor of security's desk. Um, which was covered in a white sheet at the time. We stood on his desk, and the one who'd put me in the punishment unit several times punched out the trapdoor above his desk, got up through the trapdoor, and then used the tools we'd stolen from workmen in the prison to cut our way out of the wood and the metal that was over the top. And that gave us access to the actual roof of the prison. We were standing by the front wall, lying on, on the ground, on the, the guttering, at the front wall, peering over the top every now and then to see if there was a um, if there were cars, traffic, or people. And then at the right moment, we just threw the electrical cord we'd used as an escape rope. We threw that over the wall and slid down, and we were gone. 
And it didn't end there, did it? Because how did you, because you didn't get caught, you know, in the movies, there's these great escapes and then there's often this catcher or there's this looking over your shoulder for a long period of time. But you were out for a very long time. Just talk me through what you did next after you, you'd escaped. How long had you served up to this point? I'd served at two and a half years of a 10-year sentence. So I still owed them seven and a half. So this is why they gave you the tag, Australia's Most Wanted Fugitive. You fled and you got away. Where did you go? Uh, firstly, I went to a union, who remained nameless, that I used to be a member of and said I need to go across the state. I need to go across the country to another state. They did that. They helped me to blend in with a group of unionists and get across the country out of solidarity. They said, we'll give you one help and that's it. Don't contact us again. So they helped me to get out of the state. From the other side of the country, I let my hair grow, grew a beard, um, worked in a factory, uh, earned money, just got a job in a factory like a normal guy, and uh, started, I'm a welder by trade, and so I started welding and working. And when I'd saved enough money, I managed to get myself through a friend, a passport, and go to New Zealand. So I saved money in New Zealand um, and then got myself a plane ticket and had some cash in my pocket. And the plane ticket took me to, I got a false passport, and the plane ticket took me to uh, Germany. I thought, I've got to go to a country where everyone looks like me. And my grandfather was German, so I thought, I'm going to go there and hide and no one will be able to see me. But the plane ticket had a stopover in Bombay, a two-day stopover as a freebie. I got to Bombay within two hours of being in Bombay. I knew I wasn't going to leave. I loved it. I knew I'd been there before. I know in another life I'd been in India for sure. But I felt I was coming home. And I loved it. I loved the chaos, the madness, and the freedom. You were, After being locked up for two and a half years, you see people just lie down in the street and go to sleep, put a blanket over their head, and everyone, thousands of people, walk around them. And no one comes along with a nightstick and says, move along. People just accept it. There was so much freedom in India, so much tolerance, and so much. The people were so liberated, and I don't think they even knew it. So I loved it, and I stayed in India, tore up the ticket to Germany, and stayed in India. And the rest is in the book Shantaram, I guess, at that period, because it's based on, it's a novel, but it's based on the experiences of my life there, of getting to know people, living in the village, living in a slum. And finally, you know, being recruited by South Bombay Mafia and working for them as a passport forger. So for, for, for someone who, who didn't see themselves as a criminal, you kind of committed the crime for, for necessity, really, to, to support your, your drug habit. And then you was in prison and you were prepared to settle down. But you obviously went through a traumatic experience with the prison guards physically beating you the way that they did. That led you to think, I need to get out of here. And you did. You got out. No mean feat. You made your way to India, and I read that, you know, not only was you a fugitive in India, and you obviously stood out like a sore thumb. It wasn't like getting to Germany where everyone looked like you and you could disappear in India. You must have stood out like a sore thumb. But they had bigger and probably more important problems than to worry about a fugitive, and the people around you probably didn't even care if they knew. But you did some incredible stuff in in India. We will come to your book, Shantaram, because I, I, I know – that that was part of what you, you wrote whilst you was in prison. But was it during this period? Because there does come a time in your story where you are captured and brought back to prison to serve out the rest of your, your sentence. Am I right? Uh, yes, I was recaptured in Germany after 10 years on the run, almost to the day. 10 years to the day, I was uh, on a smuggling run in Germany, bringing passports, gold, currencies, drugs. I was smuggling for the South Bombay Mafia and was caught. And then into what's called Auslieferungspast, which um, extradition prison. So for 19 months, I fought the extradition um, back to Australia in order to win concession. It's a it's a tip for anybody: never give up, and always the law, as you know, the law is there. It, it is an instrument, and uh, if, if you learn how to play that instrument, you know you can play it as well as anyone else. And so I, when I got to the prison, they didn't know who I was. I was caught as a smuggler, and they took my fingerprints, but I knew they were going to say, oh, my God, we got Australia's most wanted man. I did a favor for a young man in prison on the first day, and he gave me a card and said, I'm leaving. Thank you. I'm leaving today. Here's my – this card is the best lawyer. I love this lawyer. She's the best lawyer in Germany. 
So I got the lawyer and I said to her, she came to see me, called her and she came to see me and I said, it's not a drug smuggling case um, or, you know, passports, currencies involved, which I had. This is irrelevant. I'm actually Australia's most wanted man and they're going to find this out very soon. So I said, what I need, and she said, extradition is inevitable. No one has ever beaten extradition on an escape from prison. You will definitely be extradited. And I said, I know that. What I need to do is win some concessions. So for six months, I trained myself in uh, to read and write German, studied the German law, and realized that, for example, in the extradition treaty, a person cannot be extradited if they're to be charged with an offense that does not exist equally in both countries. Now, escaping from prison is an offence in Australia that carries a five-year penalty. In Germany, it is not an offence. Damaging property during an escape is an offence. Injuring a person is a serious offence, and they both attract penalties. But just escaping from custody isn't an offence. So I knew I had a very good ground to uh, oppose this. The court asked me, okay, we're ready to go. What Do you have any objections? to being extradited, and I said, yes, indeed. What are they? And said, I'd like to give you my first. You cannot extradite me because I'm dead. And they said to my lawyer, we think we made a mistake in allowing this man to do this in German because he just said to us that he's dead and he's demonstrably alive. And my lawyer said, oh, no, no, he's definitely dead, and produced a document which we'd uh, received from Australia. My ex-wife had had me declared legally dead while I was away on the run, so that she could remarry. So I was declared legally dead in Australia. Nine, eight, nine years after I escaped, I was declared legally dead. So the court, you could see the smiles on the judges' faces and they said, he's right, there is no provision to extradite a dead man and he's legally dead by your definition. <laughs> and so the Australian authorities had to come back within 48 hours and say, okay, okay, here's a document declaring him legally alive. I think I'm wondering, few people on this planet who can prove that I'm alive. <laughs> That's a crazy story, but they were obviously, I mean, it delayed the inevitable, which was you being extradited, extradited back to Australia. And by now you'd probably ruffled their feathers that when you did get back, you were not going to have an easy time. Well, to a certain extent, um, on the, I mean, what I won, the concessions I won were enormous. Uh, firstly, five years I saved that I would have had to do for the escape. I have never been charged with escaping from prison. Never. Even though the whole world knows I did. And that's because to extradite me, the Australian government had to agree, yes, this offence doesn't exist equally in both countries, so we will never charge him with escaping. So once I'd won the concessions, the extradition happened, I came back to Australia as a punishment to try to deter others, they put me in solitary for two years. And that was the record. People are down there for two weeks. You know, two they go mad after two months. So I was down there for two years. But it turned out to be a, a, a significant turning point in my life. Very, very important one. One of the best things that's ever happened to me in my entire life. Well, but why would you say that? I mean, as you just said, you know, being put in solitary confinement for any length of time is psychologically damaging to, to any human being, no matter how tough you are or how resilient you are, it chips away at, at who you are as a person and creates another membrane, if you like, that, that alters your, your personality and character. So why would you say that that time when you returned back to Australia to see out the time for the robberies, that that was a defining um, point in your life, in who you become thereon? Well, uh, firstly, this is not for everybody, obviously. Um, solitary confinement is generally across the world regarded as torture. And um, more and more, this will come to be defined as torture, and people will regard this as tremendously inhumane. And it is. And it does damage people. I thought that I emerged after two years there strong, stronger than I went in, much stronger. I did a lot of exercise, push-ups, you know, all this madness you do to keep yourself going. I walked five kilometers every day in my cell, back and forth. And the way to do that without having to count what you're doing was to do it uh, by having small pieces of paper in my hand and I would throw them on the bed as I walked past and you're only three, two and a half paces in one direction, two and a half paces in the other. And when I'd emptied them all, I knew I'd done a kilometre. So I would then pick up the pieces and keep going and do another kilometre without having to think about that. I kept myself healthy and fit. I thought that when I got out of, out of solitary, they had not damaged me and that I'd emerged from it in fully intact. Then after a, a couple of months in the mainstream, I tried to sing the first time. 
And I was a professional singer. I'd made money when I was on the run for years as a professional singer. I had I could walk into any piano bar anywhere and get a job and sing because I was a good singer and I knew all the lyrics of all the songs, whether it's Stevie Wonder or the Beatles or anybody, I knew all the lyrics of all the songs. And I loved working with piano players. And, and so on top, I tried to sing and it went, uh, uh. I thought that's a bit weird. So I tried again a bit later and it didn't work. And it didn't come back for 12 years. I couldn't actually sing again. And that's, I, I finally realized you can't sing without the spirit. Singing and letting it out and letting it go is, is the spirit. And, you're let, and when the spirit goes, they, they literally took the spirit out. And it took me years to realize what had happened to me and how, how damaged I'd been by this tremendous isolation. So, yes, it is torture, and it's not for everybody. <laughs> In my case, I had a huge advantage. I had been for 10 years, I'd been all over the world. I'd been to 40 countries. I'd learned to speak four languages. I'd immersed myself in cultures. I'd fallen in love, fallen out of love, traveled everywhere, met every kind of person, and I'd put myself at the feet of literally dozens of spiritual teachers I'd met. And people would say, oh, there's this holy man up on the hills here, and he's amazing. I went there. I sat at the holy man's feet to listen. So by the time I was recaptured, and put back into prison. If it had happened a month after, there'd be no change within me. But I had this wealth of experience that I'd never had before. As a, a hometown boy from Melbourne, Australia, I suddenly had different languages, different ways to communicate, different ways of seeing the world. So I had that huge advantage. I was locked in solitary with 10 years of color and, and brilliance and madness and experience to live in and live through. That's the first thing. I had a huge advantage that, that other people don't have when they go into solitary. The second thing is that I spent the first year, like most people in, in that situation, whinging and moaning. You know, like about my you know, troubling deaf heaven with my bootless cries, you know. <laughs> and it was sort of like this, turn, oh, why is this happening? And in the second year, as the calendar turned, and I knew I've got one more year, I've only done half of it now. And it was pretty hard the first time. I realized, I started to realize this, this is me. This is me. I did this to myself. I did this to other people. This is me. I have to take personal responsibility. All this pain and humiliation is just a beast of my own creation. The fate is the cards you're dealt with, the family you're born into, the genetic disposition you have, and genetic predispositions. How you play them is your destiny. And I realized I can shape my own destiny here. I don't have to be a passive participant in the river of incarceration. I can be my own person and shape my destiny. So that was the second thing. And the third thing was I'd completely changed my perspective on prison officers. In the first two and a half years, I regarded them as the enemy and I fought them every chance I got. And, you know, there, there was a lot of cruelty. There were things like running the gauntlet where you have to walk between or run. They expect you to run. I would never do it. Beat me as much as you want. I am not going to run down between two lines of men who are going to hit me. Excuse me. You should be ashamed of what you're doing to me. I'm ashamed to be here. It's my shame and my disgrace that, I'm, that I committed these crimes and I'm in prison. But this is now your disgrace to do this to us. And so on. I had such an anger and resentment, and a huge amount of that, with anger at myself, of course, that I was venting on them. I changed my perspective. I didn't see the uniform anymore. I just saw the person in it. Who is that human being? How can I connect? You get a few seconds, and they open the door, and that's it. But those few seconds can be warm communication or hateful communication, and it's up to you, not them. It's entirely up to you. So I shaped that with my relationship with the prison officers. By the time I left the prison, the prison officers lined up outside the prison. But on the inside, all the crooks lined up to shake my hand and they all said, we'll never see you again, mate. We'll never see you again. Well, no, you're not coming back here, mate. We'll never see you again. When I got out, to my surprise, prison officers had lined up and they shook my hand saying, we'll never see you again. We'll never see you again. So that was the third thing. Not seeing the prison officers as the enemy, seeing them as human beings in a different colored suit. 
It's such an interesting point because you're right, it does change the relationship and how you do your time. Was it during this time you were in solitary and seeing out the rest of that sentence that you wrote your best-selling book, Shantaram? Because I read that this was a book that that had been destroyed by the prison guards. So I suspect that this was, uh, is that, was it destroyed, the, the, the first writings of it during your conflict, your hostilities with the guards, or was this after? And tell me a little bit about where this book would take anybody that hasn't read it at the moment. Because you you mentioned earlier that when you were in Bombay, Bombay in India, that you've become embroidered with with the mafia, the Indian mafia, and were involved in all sorts of scardadigans and 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 criminality. Um, tell me a little bit about the book and how that came to fruition when you were first inside. Very good. And just on that point, I think that in in life there are people who commit crimes and criminals, and they're not the same thing necessarily. When I first went into prison, I was a person who committed crimes. When I escaped, I became a criminal. And a criminal is someone who does it for a living and accepts that doing a bit every now and then is part of the job. You're going to do a bit here and a bit there. You're going to do a three. You're going to do a five. You might do an eight bit and so on. You're going to do that bit and it's a part of it. And it's this rather than carry a cut lunch and hang on to a scrap on the bus and go to work every day. It's a different, that's a criminal. And they have a different mindset. And I discovered that in prison and I discovered it when I went out. And also, by the way, I had every advantage um, and went to prison. So, you know, here there's no excuse. I had an education. I had good family. I had everything. I met men in there who'd been brutalized since they were kids, since they were children. They'd been in foster homes, one after the other. The, the child abuse rate in prison is unbelievable. The literacy rate, the fact that, that more than half the men, inadequate literacy and numeracy skills is shocking. But, and be, that we can actually get to this state. They had no advantage. And there's, for them, there's no disgrace to me. There was terrible disgrace to me. With the book, um, when I was in solitary and I hit that turning point, I realized, you know what, I've got to do something down here. The men who come and go, and they only spend two to two weeks, four weeks or so, they're constantly fighting with the officers. They're getting beaten up. They're being, and we all get gassed. When they get gassed, we get gassed. When they gas them in their cell, we have to, we, we know, oh, here it comes. They're going to gas them. You hear the dogs coming, and then you know there's going to be the gas. They're going to put the gas into the cell before they take the man out because he's wrecked the cell. So they, they, we all get gas. So we get toilet paper and put it in the, around our door and so on to try to stop it. And you're sitting there with your eyes weeping and coughing and, and so on nonstop. This happens every other week. So I just thought, you know what, well, I've got to do something. So And you can call out to other men. You can't see them, but you can call out. And so, and if it gets too unruly, they just come around and say, you know, stop talking. I called out to one of the other guys and said, um, listen, Bluey, can you hear me? And he said, who wants him? I said, it's Doc. My nickname in prison was Doc. And he said, oh, Doc, you're that fucking came back from overseas. Said, oh, man, I, I want to sit down and have a, when, we, when I get out of here, we'll have a brew and we'll have a yap. I want to know everything about all the crimes you committed overseas. I want to learn everything and be a really good international criminal. I said, <laughs> You're not going to make it out of here, man. You're only down here for a few weeks, but every time they open the door, you punch on with them. And they're, they're, this is going to end badly for you. It's not good for them, but it's going to end up much more for you. You've got to stop this. And he said, what can I do, mate? I'm shattered. I hate it down here. I hate them. I hate it. I said, look, I'm going to teach you a meditation technique if you're interested. I learned this. And he said, what did you say? A masturbation technique? I said, that might help. No, it's a meditation technique. He said, what the bloody hell is that? I said, it's from India. It's just a way of easing your mind and getting yourself in a calm state. So when they ring the bell at 7.30, we know they're going to ring the bell. They ring it at 7.30, and 8.30, and then the lights go out till 8 in the morning. You've got 12 hours darkness, 12 hours light. So at 7.30, get your pillow and your blanket, sit by the door, and I'm going to walk you through this. So he did it. And after a week, I had another bloke call out and say, can I join in? And I said, why not? So I had two men. After about a month, as new men would come in and punch on with the officers, when it all settled down, you'd get someone calling out and say, settle down, mate. Tonight we do a meditation about 7.30. It'll chill you out, mate. Don't worry about it. Just settle down. So the others were calling out to these men. So after a couple of months of doing this, without any permission, I was just doing it at night for 30 minutes from 7.30 till 8, talking them through the meditation. And the governor called me into his office 
Like the cell door opens, the governor wants to see you. So he button up everything and double time march into the governor's office, standard attention, and he says, standard ease, and standard ease, and then he says, stand easy. And then he says, all right, this mumbo jumbo from India that you're doing with the men, keep going. I said, oh, yes, why? And he said, self-mutilation rates, zero. Suicide attempts, zero. And most important for me, assaults on my officers, zero. Since you've been doing this, keep doing it. I said, all right. And then I was about to leave. And he said, is there anything we can do for you? Because it's very limited down here. But is there anything? And I said, yes, I'm a writer. I need a pen and paper. So he said, how much do you want? I said, can I have a ream? 500 sheets? <laughs> and for me, that would have been the, that's the prep. I would have had four more rooms. He said, I'll give you five sheets and a pen. I'm not supposed to let you have a pen. And if you use this against one of my officers, they'll be held at bay. I promise you. So I got the pen and I got the paper for teaching meditation and I started the book. And before I was released from solitary, I came back from the exercise period, as you were saying, in a cage. You exercise in a little cage. I came back and the book, had, the manuscript had been torn into, into tiny pieces and was flowing out of the toilet bowl. I, I understand this. I, I sort of get it. This is the same kind of mindless aggression that comes from outside against them. So we got out of solitary. I started it again. And then this time, a second officer. I was there two years into the book, 600 pages. And I came back to myself from work, where I was working, and it had been torn to pieces. And I went to the guard. I sat down the bed and I thought, when I looked at it, the first thought I had, I have to admit, was to go there and hammer him. I was thinking, I'm going to flatten him. I'm going to put this guy down. I'm going to put him on his ass and make him realize what he just did. And then I thought, what am I doing? <laughs> what am I doing? The whole book that I'm trying to write this novel is about finding a better way to be who you are, a stronger way to be who you are in this world, and a better way to be with other people. I got it. This is right. So I went up to him and I said, no, I can't do that. I went to him and I said, I know why you did it. Uh, I said, um, I know what you did and it's okay. I'm letting it go. And he put his eyes down and he said, I don't know why I've done that. I don't know why I've done it. And I said, it's all right. And I walked away. Nothing more was said. Fast forward, I get out of prison. So it takes me five years of parole that I start a company. What are you going to do when you get out of prison and you're a bank robber, counterfeiter, forger, gun runner, smuggler? Advertising. I started an ad agency. And um, it went really well. Went gangbusters. We had a great gang ad agency. It worked really well for the little crew around us. And I did my five years parole and used the ad agency to make enough money to get myself months at a time to stop and work on the book. So the book comes out and I go... <laughs> I go to suddenly discover that I'm invited to writer's festival all over the place. And I went to the writer's festival in Melbourne, do my speech. At the end of it, I'm signing books with a long line of people. Thank you, people who want books signed. God bless you all. And thank you. So I, and so thank you, anybody who comes. So I'm there signing books, talking to people. And who comes up? The prison guard holding the book. And I, I went to shake hands and he flinched. And I, I said, come here, come here, shake hands. And then I said, so you're still in the service? He said, I hated that job. I'm so sorry for what I did. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And he started crying. And he was holding the book. And I said, listen, listen let me sign it for you. And he said, he was holding it. So I can't, let, I can't let you do that. How can you sign the book that I ripped up? I can't let you do that. So I, I hugged him while he, with the book while he was still holding it and clung onto him. And I said in his ear, it's okay. It's a much better book than the one we ripped. Thank you. And he said, seriously? I said, mate, what it was, it was the most ruthless edit any writer could ever get. It was like the most ruthless edit. It was like Satan edited it. No, man, it's a better book. Trust me, it's a way much, much better book. And he stopped crying and everything was fine. Two years later, I'm back in Melbourne at the same festival and the same prison officer comes up. But this time, he's in a swanky-panky suit, a cashmere overcoat. He has a beautiful fiancé with him. He says, I want you to meet my fiancé. I got out of the prison service. I hated that job. It was not right for me. I'm in computers, and what do you know? I created an algorithm, and now I'm Richard Creases. Can I help you and do something for you? <laughs> it's it's quite incredible, isn't it? How how tables can turn. People's lives change almost not overnight, but you endured such such an interesting journey. The book itself, it, it, it's a bestseller. It sold millions of copies. Is it based? I haven't read the book myself yet, but I've read some of the reviews. Uh, and it's an interesting one because 
it's it's about your life, but it's about other people's lives, people that you've interacted with uh, along the way. That's the book. One one of the things that I I also find really interesting was these few lines, and I don't know whether it's in the book or not, but it talks about you becoming quite spiritual, that you almost went off the grid, is how some people have described it, where you disappeared from you. You know, your book was successful, people. You were in demand, um, and you were changing other people's lives now, you know, that prison officer included. But but having an impact on so many different people in different ways because of your own journey. And I'd love to go into the details of how you became a criminal and got embroidered in all of the the, the characters that led you to do the things that you you then did. But I'm I'm interested at this point to hear about what you mean or what people mean when they say you went off the grid and why you went off the grid and what you did during that time where you disappeared from the face of the earth, so to speak. Sure. I had always been a spiritual person without realizing it. I, I think everyone is a spiritual person. We're all spiritual and we're all on a spiritual path. Some of us walk it consciously, others just walk it unconsciously and subconsciously. But we're all on the path. What happened is that I spent years and years trying to get answers or even get better questions. I had studied philosophy at the university. That was my big thing. I'd studied comparative religion. And so when I went on the run, I continued to study. I um, did three classes, three courses at Santa Cruz University in Boston, just walking in, sitting there and doing the courses without any permission or authority because they happened to be on comparative religion and theology, which was fascinating me at the time. I was searching for answers and I didn't find them. I'm not saying other people won't, but I didn't necessarily find them in religion. I didn't find them in the religion of my youth, which was Catholicism, even though I think there are a lot of benefits to a Catholic education, but I didn't find the answers I wanted. I love Jesus. I, I still do. I, he's my only historical hero. Uh, what an incredible person. He'd be a great person to, to have a motorcycle ride with or sit down and listen to the music with and chill out. And every single word, just brilliant. Brilliant philosopher, my favorite philosopher. Brilliant. And talk about walk the talk. They, they flog him and beat him and drag thorns into his head and jump things and spears into him and nail him to wood. And what does he say? Forgive them? Like, what? Talk about walk the talk. Amazing. So I loved Jesus, but I wasn't finding the answers I wanted there. So I started to investigate other religions for years. I learned how to pray in Arabic uh, with Muslims and prayed with them and did the Ramadan year after year after year. I learned to pray uh, with Hindus in Hindu temples and I learned the mantras, learned the chants, learned the calls and responses. I um, went and lived for a period of time with, in a Buddhist community, um, exclusively a Buddhist community in a rural area, and learned, um, watched their traditions, learned them, sat with them, listened to their sages, and put myself at the feet of teachers whenever I heard that there was a teacher somewhere. But I still didn't find the answers I was looking for, or even, if you like, the more precise questions. So, And then a friend of mine said to me, there's this holy man in India who wants to meet you in Bombay. And I said, you know, I've met so many. And, uh, and he said, no, this guy is going to do a favor for me if I bring you. He wants to meet you. So I went there as a favor to someone else, not seeking the wisdom from this particular person, thinking I'll do this and then I'll leave and I'll never go back. But I met my spiritual teacher. And uh, the old saying is true. When the student is ready, the teacher appears. I think if I'd met him a year before, two years before, I would not have had the same reaction. But I was ready, and I met him, and I loved his, his way. He never quotes scripture, uh, even though he knows them all. He's a Brahmin Hindu of the highest caste, a priest permitted, who has got permission and authority to perform the most arcane rituals. So he knows all of these texts, but he only ever speaks in personal experience from what he knows. It's not, well, the great teachings tell you this, which all the teachers had done. He just said, I think this, I know this from my experience, this. And that was tremendously informative for me. So I found a spiritual teacher and I watched and studied and listened to him. The second time I went there, I said, excuse me, sir, do you mind if I write down what you just said? He said, what do you mean? What you just said, write it down. He said, of course. So I got out my notebook. I now have 30 notebooks of quotes from this person. And it's that kind of thing, sitting down and just and listening and observing. I watched him perform his rituals, never thinking I would do them for years. And then when my parents were dying, I told them we have to, we're going back to Australia to care for my parents. It might be a year. It turned out to be two and a half years. 
he gave me a shell, a conch shell, which he blows the shell every day, and in every temple they blow the conch. And he said, here, this belonged to my mother. Take this. My mother used to blow it. So I, I looked at it and said, what am I going to do with it? And he said, put it on a window as a decoration on a shelf or blow it. And it's up to you. No requirements to do anything. So I went back and I, to Australia looking after my parents. And because of the fact that we were looking after mum and dad who were very ill, that was taking 80% of our time anyway. So the step of saying, you know what, if I'm actually going to blow this shell in devotion, I have to go through the various steps involved to clean myself up to be worthy of doing it. And so I, to do that, I need to go off the grid to not go to parties and lunches and dinners and all of these things in breakfast and brunches and things and events to not do that for a period of time, to remain within my small group of my family and my very, very close up ones, not see people, not to go out and to really work on myself to be worthy of starting the devotion. So that, which was supposed to be a year or two, became six years off the grid, where before, so for six years, I didn't go to a party, an event, uh, dinner, lunch. One year in June, I said to my uh, soulmates, you know, we've seen, I've met five people this year. That's enough. Let's not meet anyone else. So I literally went off the grid. And in that period, I began my devotion, which continues to this day. What came out of that isolation was a huge body of work, tremendous body of work, um, which I'm now you know, happy to share uh, with people who are interested. So uh, I hope that those who used to be interested in what I was doing or in a book or something, and then scratch their head going, six years, this guy's been off the grid. There's a message on his website saying goodbye. I'm, I'm, I'm in the spiritual zone trying to figure this out. I hope that now they see that as a, a very valuable time, not just say, they may say it's valuable to me, and it is, but valuable in the sense that there's, there's a rich body of work now that's come out of this. And the first album is called Love and Faith. This, it was an expression of those six years, and everything I'm doing now is an expression of love and faith. <laughs> yeah, and I would encourage people. I, I, I was only made aware of it um, recently, and, 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 and I would describe it, like I said earlier, a, a fusion between kind of roots, reggae, country, uh, uh, but it's, it's, it's such a diverse sound, actually, and it feels very original. I love, obviously, with, with my Jamaican roots, and I know you're in Jamaica right now, and I keep looking at that lovely scenery behind you and feeling very, very jealous. Um, people can't see you right now. I can. How would you describe yourself now? Because like I said, at the beginning of this conversation, you were Australia's most wanted fugitive. You've taken me through your journey as a, as a heroin addict and, and what and why you become a heroin addict. You escaped from prison, went on the run, got involved in. You've had such a an interesting jigsaw of a life. But it seems to me that you are so content with yourself and who you are and where you're going next. Who is Greg now? How would you describe yourself? In one word, devoted. Um, to what? What are you devoted to? Well, this is the thing. Uh, that thing that I was searching for, I, I said this in the spiritual path in this little book, what I was searching for all those years was my devoted self. That's what I was searching for, and I didn't know that until I became devoted. I had been looking for a way to give my devotion spiritually. And with the conch shell, what we're doing is when we blow the shell, we're saying to the divine, I, I get it. You are beyond wanting and needing. You don't need this. You don't want this. You're beyond wanting and needing. Those are material things that are in our world. We want. We need. You don't. You're the divine. You created wanting and needing. You're beyond that. But you made a world in which I am free. I'm born into this world with free will. I can freely give this to you, even though I know you don't want it and don't need it, or I can not. And I freely give it to you, and I hope it pleases you. And if it doesn't, I'll do better tomorrow, but I'll never stop trying. I'm devoted, and I'm giving this to you. I don't ask you for anything. I have faith. Faith is freedom from fear. And faith is not belief. They're two different things, I think. Religion is about what we agree to believe, a set of things. If you agree to believe this list, you're a Muslim. If you agree to believe this list, you're a Hindu. If you agree to believe this list, you're a Christian, etc. Faith is about what we experience, not what we agree to believe, but what we experience inside. So 
That means that there are many, many people of religion who are deeply spiritual, but there are many deeply spiritual people who have no religion at all. So religion is not required for the spirituality. Spirituality was there before any religion, before any prophet. So we, we've always been involved with the spiritual, and, we, and it's just that we tend, in our society, we tend to um, disconnect. Connection is the key. What is the act of devotion? It's connection. When you're blowing the conscience devotion and not asking for anything, saying, I have what I need. I have all that I need. I'll do what I need for my own strength. I don't need you to cut my fingernails. I can do everything. I can do this. I just love you and I give this to you. And so I'm just so happy to be in this existence and looking at this gorgeous world you made. And I love you. And that's it. I don't care what you do. Kill me tomorrow. Do what you want. I am yours and I love you. This abandon, this surrender is not lying on the ground and being kicked by God. This is surrendering the things inside yourself, your ego, that are not required to become a devoted person. So devoted is the word I'd use, devoted to the divine, in whatever that means to you or anybody else, devoted to my art and my work, devoted to my family, devoted to my friends, devoted to my partner. I have become more devoted as a person. And uh, one of the questions my teacher asked is, show me your devotion. And quite often when people are struggling to express this and they go, uh, uh, you'll say, that's the answer. Find a way. There's also another aspect. Maybe, maybe there is a soul. There's definitely something that happens after we pass on because there are far too many spirits in this world for there not to be. We know something's happening. So what does it mean if we have a soul? Maybe a soul is a symbiont attached to us when we're born, probably every living thing, and our job is to be the guardian angel of that soul because when we physical units die, the soul continues. So our job is to polish it up, keep it nice and shiny, so the next person who gets it gets a shiny soul. It, it's, as I listen to you, it's admirable. At the same time, I can't help but think that although this devotion allows a freedom that, that, that you arrive at, I just wonder if when, when, when you're devoted to something, there is an expectation, an expectation that you live up to that devotion and that you're constantly in search of making sure that you meet that devotion. Is that in itself not, not a challenge that every day given what your devotion is, that your expectation to meet that devotion poses the kinds of challenges that add weight to what should be your freedom. But, you know, everybody who's looking at you, judging you, not that you care about this, but from the external, people are looking, judging, questioning, wondering, does that in itself not put a pressure on somebody that's devoted to themselves? You know, it did to a certain extent. That's true. When I first Came, you know, after the parole, the book was published, and I was traveling the world as a public speaker and going to events. You know, I'd been 25 years straight. I hadn't taken heroin. I didn't drink. I didn't smoke cigarettes. I didn't take any drugs of any kind. And I was a bit of a role model and perceived myself that way. Of course, a lot of that is ego. And the real question for me then is, am I worthy? And how much giving is in my intention? Have I packed my intention with giving or is it mostly about what I can get? And am I worthy of this thing? If there's a, a person you know, I might take this acquaintanceship to another level, invite that person to come and have a coffee, this colleague or this person, and get to know them a bit better because I think the question would be, am I worthy of them? If I start this friendship and then, oh, there's an accident and that person's deeply injured and there's no one else, would I be prepared to go and help and, and stay with that person and so on? Am I worthy of this? And secondly, how much giving is in my intention? How, how much is about what I can offer and share with this person? How much is about what I can get from this other person? You know what I mean? So <laughs> I think so in my case, if it wasn't going back to the challenge thing, if it wasn't a challenge, if it wasn't difficult, I wouldn't be interested in doing it. You know, it, it, it is a challenge. It is difficult. I, I don't think there's much necessarily now today of the role model thing my life is a litany of mistakes. It's basically, I can give you great advice, don't do what I did. Here, there, and there, and there, and again, here, and then there, if you know what I mean. So 
So I don't know about that side of it, and I'm more private now, I guess, than I'm, I'm public in terms of, of digital presence, but more of a private person. I don't see that many people. For me, finding a way to become devoted, which is, see, love is selfless giving. People use the word love, but they don't really know. We, we, we have a mishmash of what love means, what most words mean, in fact. Love for me is selfless giving. What is it when a mother feeds her three children and they say, where's yours? One, one the, the, the empathetic kid will say, where's yours? And she says, I already ate. And the kids gobble up that little bit of food. And that kid comes back in the kitchen and sees mum eating the crust that a kid left on the plate because she didn't eat before. And the kid, this is selfless giving. And whether it's a mother, a father, a brother, a sister, a friend, it doesn't have to be a mum. I'm just using that as an example. This is love, selfless giving. There's nothing for you in it. It's all for the other person. And it's rare in this world. It's a rare thing, a beautiful and rare thing. Now, devotion is spiritual love. It's selfless giving to the divine. That's, you know, spiritual devotion. It's selflessly giving. You don't want anything. You don't ask them. There's nothing in it for you. You just do it. And that's where faith comes from, doing it and not asking for anything and uh, 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 saying, I'm ready. Whatever happens, I'm ready now. So this is where this is. And, and I personally can't stress enough how fine. See, I know you're devoted to what you do because the quality of your podcast and these things, they're all of a quality. That you're, it's not lazy. You're not phoning it in. You're devoted in this. And people see it. They feel it. And that, the, 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 what is that? It means it's be offering something from yourself to something bigger than yourself, something other than yourself, and so on. So that's the key of this, I think. I, I appreciate you saying that because it's so true, and I've never really looked at that. But I love that line, love is selfless giving. We know it, we hear it all the time, but I think how you've articulated it should remind everybody um, that if they're not doing that in some way, shape, or form deliberately, they they need to be aware that they that they have to in, in order to be content with themselves. This is called second chance, and it, it's always difficult to ask somebody what that means to them because second chance means different things to to different people. And you know, I, I'm I'm an advocate that you don't always you're not always given a second chance. You take a second chance, and it sounds to me like that might be where you're at. But just to end this, because we have to come to an end as much as I could talk with you all day Greg and I'm sure we'll pick this up at some other point especially if I get a chance to come out to Jamaica again quite soon but just tell me what does if it means anything to you at all what does a second chance mean to you not just for yourself but to other people Um, I, I think this is critically important in our justice system and critically important socially as well we used to believe in redemption Second chance is, is really about redemption, redeeming yourself, being redeemed or whatever, and finding some kind of redemption. We used to believe in this. One of the, my principal argument against the death penalty is that life is sacred, but um, a secondary argument is that it is the extinction of the opportunity for redemption. It's just saying that there's no chance now. We're, we're not, we're not going to even give you this scintilla of opportunity that you may find redemption somehow for yourself and for whatever. This is very important. And a sec- so second chance is about redemption, but it's also about forgiveness. No second chance comes without a measure of forgiveness in life. And I did a speech once to, to the Association of Australasian Judges and Magistrates and started by saying, we all know, ladies and gentlemen, I'm so glad to have this opportunity. It's so nice to have you paying to see me for a change. It's wonderful out here. Uh, uh, we all know that if we don't get enough of the F word in our lives, we're, we're, we get agitated and we get anxious. We all need the F word. And I went on and on and they were squirming in their seats. And I said, by now you know, of course, the F word is forgiveness. And there's three components of juridical sentencing, uh, punishment, deterrence, and rehabilitation. They said, these three pillars make no sense without a fourth pillar, forgiveness. We need to earn a measure of forgiveness and then to receive it and to go back into the society as forgiven people. As it is, we emerge from prison knowing we're unforgiven, and unforgiven men become very unforgiving in their lives. So the second chance, redemption, it's the opportunity for redemption, whether a person sees it or not, and it has a measure of forgiveness in it, and a measure of that is self-forgiveness. 
you can't forgive yourself until you accept it, what you did, a personal responsibility, and then forgive yourself and say, you know what, I'm not going to do that again. I've messed up. There may be people who, who just would refuse to have anything to do with me because of my past, but I'm not going to let that determine who I am as a person. I'm taking this opportunity, this second chance in my life, to change the direction of my life and to earn the respect of other people. I'm going to do this. I'm going to put myself in a position where if I get respect, I've earned it from others. So I think the second chance is vital. And so often now, we, you know, we find a, a culture where a, a blemish from the past, an offense that somebody's committed, it could be something they said or something they wrote, can end their career and finish their life. We know that the most successful component in the Me Too movement has been the, the most enduring and successful component. Brilliant that it happened. <laughs> horrible that the event happened in the past. Brilliant that finally Me Too happened. But one of the, the most enduring is the one that built in from the start a capacity to say to a man, you did this. And you need to find your way back because this is not right. And to confront that person and say, and the ones that said, this is the way you can earn your way back. Rather than, you're finished, we never want to see you ever again. The second chance seems to be evaporating in our society. There are less and less opportunities where people will provide it, less and less opportunity for redemption, less and less sense of forgiveness. And, you know, we have a brilliant example. We have Jesus. Father, forgive them for they know what, not what they do. I mean, we have a brilliant example where it's uh, up to us to live up to that example. But yes, the second chance is vital. I see it slipping away, and I'd love to see it restored. I'd love that what you're doing is the second chance. It's vitally important. Everyone needs it, whether they deserve it or not. Everyone needs a second chance in their life. Thank you so much, Greg. I, I couldn't have put it any any better, and I think it's such a powerful testament. But look, I'm out of time. Thank you so much for for sharing your story, your wisdom. Thank you so much for sharing your story with me and my audience. I really do appreciate it. Huge, huge pleasure. Blessings and respect. And can't wait for you to come and drop in in Jamaica. We'll hang out here. It's heaven for me. I'm never leaving this country as long as I live. Greg Roberts is a shining example of how people can have a real second chance at life. And it's stories like this which give us hope in difficult times. If you want to learn more about Greg's journey then I highly recommend reading Shantaran. Thanks for listening to this episode and please share and follow us on social media. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe and tell your friends to subscribe too or at least recommend the podcast. It would be great if you could rate and review on the site where you listen to this podcast. If you want to support or advertise on this show, please get in touch. If you think I should get someone on the show, drop me a direct message via LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or any other means you have to make contact. Audio editing is by Audio Avalanche. The original music is by J. Rowe Productions. The cover design work is by Studio Minerva. Our guest booker is Tegan Parsons. And me, your host, Raphael Rowe. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.